Part 12 of Confessions of Two Brothers This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powys and Llewellyn Powys Confessions by Llewellyn, Section 1 Read by Grant Peterson Forward. I do not think these vague autobiographical ramblings should, as a matter of fact, bear the title of confessions. Confessions suggest that one has written about one's sins. This I have not had the courage to do. Instead, I have endeavoured to recapture, from the past, some of the simplest sensations which have made up my life. My thanks are due to the editors of The New Statesman and The New Age for allowing me to republish passages from my diary which have already appeared in their papers. Section 1 To be suddenly born, to suddenly acquire consciousness on the surface of this unsteady and amazing planet, that is a chance indeed to justify everything. Life is a series of visions and sensations by which the wildest fortune it has been given to us to experience. Puritans are fond of the phrase, it is for us to do this or that. And it appears to me, it is for us merely to be irresponsible spectators of the drama of existence as it unrolls itself. Irresponsible, however, that is the secret, that is the key to one's attitude in a world whose very foundations are so complex, so varied, so scandalously immoral. To an adventurous and imaginative spirit the world is as it should be. Nothing confined, nothing explained, nothing impossible. Of course, if people endeavour to graft their own particular ideas of what life ought to be upon life as it is, they begin to sigh and grow grave immediately. Once, however, let a man come to understand that nothing really matters, that there is not a particular purpose in our corner of the universe, that the earth has but to circle the sun some seventy times and he is gone and a new acquiescence will be born into his soul, an acquiescence which will give him time and taste to look around him and let the golden sand run through his fingers how wistfully. Out here in Central Africa, these truths are brought home to one continually. One has but to draw aside the tangled branches of these ancient overgrown forests to appreciate what kind of a world we live in. In civilized countries, the silly conceptions of silly people stifle our intelligence, just as their drawing rooms stifle our lungs. But in this country, where through terror the grass eaters never grow fat, and where every night the striped fiery hunters feel the death throes of their prey, one cannot be so easily deceived. Casualty, injustice, demonic cruelty is patent and to realize that these goings-on have received divine sanction from the earliest ages, it is only necessary to raise one's eyes to the sun 
as he rises in his splendour morning after morning. I sometimes think that children, if left to themselves, understand the nature of the universe far better than grown-up people. I think they look at the world in the right way, are more receptive and receive its experiences with more appropriate emotions. Those vague, simple, delicious memories of a child, so delicate, so evasive, are amongst the memories one would wish if there was a future life to carry away with one. The first glimpse of tiny blue eggs in a hedge sparrow's nest, the happy tints on summer curtains put up unexpectedly in the night nursery after the dreary winter rains, the soothing, somnolent twittering of swallows when one was trying to go to sleep with all the sounds and scents of the garden coming in at the open window. To a child also, the alternative, the terrible, is continually present. They are supersensitive to all those vague intimations of the unknown, of the supernatural, which even the most naturalistic of us feel sometimes as when by ourselves we open the doors of empty darkened rooms. They understand the romance of the terrible, of the stark. I remember when I was a child, a black cat was hung on a Wellingtonia in a field opposite the nursery window. Village boys used to come and whip it. I cried and was miserable, yet the spectacle had for my imagination the suggestion of endless terrible things which might be going on in the great world outside where, truth to say, it is given to certain human beings to derive pleasure from whipping, and perhaps from whipping not only black cats. Another terrible revelation came with the death of my sister. She was only a little older than myself. The week before we had been looking for linnet's eggs in the battlefield, pushing our way through the gorse bushes, which were so prickly and so yellow and smelt so sweet in the April sunshine. I was taken into the spare room and saw her lying in bed, feverish and sick. She asked me how we were getting on with the house we were building in the garden and whether there were eggs yet in the chaffinch's nest at the end of the box hedge. The next day as the rest of us were sitting under the shade of the Portugal laurel on the lawn, my brother, J.C.P., came to say she had been taken away by the angels. I know now that it was only the way he put it, that really he does not believe in angels and never did. I think death alone, the mere report and rumour of it, brings home in some degree to the most inexperienced intelligence, the fatal and exciting nature of our destiny, of the destiny of all living things who have each in their turn to go down into the pit. At school, under the shadow of the grey abbey, I gradually awakened to the continuous poetry of life set as it was against so immemorial and romantic a background. It was there, too, that I came to learn for the first time of the passionate and tremulous emotions which lie at the back and root of all life. Masters used to try to persuade one in solemn conversations alone in the study 
that these emotions were wrong, that their only raison d'etre was as a means by which God tricked the human race into prolonging its life generation after generation. Sexual excitement to this day remains for me a treacherous and scarlet background, but I now understand that all lapses in this direction should be treated with the utmost indulgence, as being merely the expression of essential subterranean forces far more powerful than any of us, and, as a matter of fact, it very often happens that this strange and subtle ecstasy is alone capable of touching with a live coal the imagination of certain very stupid people. For years I remained in the lower school, dreaming over my school books, my mind as dim and unlighted as the monk-haunted classrooms where I sat. Then suddenly I found myself shoved into the upper school, into the clear white light of Mr. R's classroom. The schoolmaster was not unlike the others, though curiously disillusioned as to the world in general. He was possessed by a passionate devotion for English literature. I think he knew the golden treasury off by heart. Over the chimney-piece where the boys collected before class was hung a photograph of the Apollo Belvedere, and those shapely white limbs have often seemed to be symbolic of the white light of that room as it shone upon and inspired my confused boy's mind. In 4a I read for the first time passages from Homer and Horace, and came to understand from punctualish translations the strange magic latent in books. R's sarcasms made their impression. He used to accuse us of reading Greek history as if it was the history of black beetles. He continually seemed to be hinting of a larger and more gracious world. I remember to this day the enthusiasm he displayed in quoting Matthew Arnold. I remember the very lines which he selected. Through the vexed garden trees, the unplumbed salt estranging sea. It was at this time that my brother, J.C.P., began giving me books. Much of the poetry I did not understand, but again I got glimpses of a wider and freer and more magnanimous world than that presented to me by the official schoolmaster and by the school chapel. Certain passages of Swinburne filled me with a profane enthusiasm. But the gods of your fashion that take and give in their pity and passion that scourge and forgive, they are all worms that are bred in the band that falls off, they shall die and not live. I began to take the spell of the school chapel very lightly, the spell of those queer intervals of silent prayer and of the dim lighted altar. I began to feel instead a thrill at the sight of the first celandine, for no other reason than that old Wadsworth had delighted in it or at the sight of the hayfields by the river, yes, red with sorrel as we wandered through them, our top hats and hands, some hot Sunday afternoon in June. In the holidays I used to stay with my brother Theodore, that strange and lonely being who has never been under any illusion about reality and its worth, and has come to learn so much melancholy wisdom in lonely places. 
He was living then in a little village by the sea. In his house I could read what I liked, and from him I imbibed a healthy distaste for the work of the practical everyday world, and an inveterate love of quaint and profound thinking. Since then he has retired to a still more secluded village, and I have never revisited Studland, but in my mind to this day a strange radiance and gladness seems to hang over the place the radiance of youth and shimmering seas, the radiance of white chalk cliffs and wet moorlands, the radiance of children's faces and children's white frocks, and the sad gladness of white seabirds crying to their young in clear sea sunshine. And then I went up to Cambridge. Perhaps no experience should be more bracing to a boy's intelligence than his first entrance into a university. To find oneself free to think and say what one likes is a privilege seldom permitted. But here in these antique rooms where there are no old people, the crass system of things is no longer so shielded. One comes across strange types. J, who kept human bones in his room and who would sleep all day and go down to the Union at night with a great pipe in his mouth and an outrageous shock of red hair over his grotesque cerebralist skull. L.U.W., still after everything, dearest and noblest of my friends, with his ardent Antononian philosophy and graceful Audrey Beardsley appearance. D of Corpus, whose ears and nails were always filthy, and who used to spend weeks at a time drinking in low, out-of-the-way taverns, because, as he said, he liked to listen to the talk he heard in such places, and liked to feel himself relapsing into alcoholic oblivion with these quaint human beings as a background to his dreams. I remember perfectly well my first night in one of those old oak-panelled rooms. The weird sensation I got when raising my head, I read on one of the beams supporting the roof the words, Pray for the soul of John Cooper Powis. I had not known it had been my brother's room, and this simple fraternal petition shocked me into understanding the grave and striking import of our lives as conceived by the one true Catholic Church. I knew that there were many people who held that my brother had no soul. Now that I look back on these short three years, I feel that I wasted my time. The actual world as I saw it seemed to absorb so much of my attention. We formed a club called the Club of Honest Cods, and we used to meet on Sunday evenings in the old court and drink hot punch and sing bawdy songs. Only at rare intervals did the old, beautiful, cruel, gay, miraculous world reveal itself. I remember standing one afternoon by the side of the river, not far from Mr. Benson's house, envisaging the deep volume of still waters flowing on and on, year after year, so, so detached, so profoundly indifferent to the lot of the wisest of all the animals who had chosen to congregate on its grass-grown banks. 
and sometimes at the high noon of night looking out at the illuminated million college windows the smooth grass and the shining ivy leaves i would experience vague intimations of the murmuring universe far far removed from corpus and from my rowdy everyday existence when i came down i spent some months at home receiving those queer little blue type notices of academic vacancies from the scholastic agents gabitas and thing i used to take these into my father's study and he used to look at them very gravely and sometimes before prayers as the family were sitting waiting for the servants to come in he would ask me if i had heard from gabitas that morning at last a letter did arrive from the headmaster of a fashionable preparatory school on the kentish coast asking me to come down and interview him i did so as soon as i arrived i was taken in to lunch in the school dining room i remember it well very well when table number three was put into silence i felt exactly the heart sinking of a new boy at coming into contact with the arbitrariness of a discipline which sends a shiver down the spine of many grown-up people even at other tables i saw under-masters carrying on conversations with the boys who sat next to them with that particular forced jocularity and superciliousness which is so noticeable to a non-academic mind again my heart sank the headmaster was a tall imposing figure in the middle of a lunch i took from my pocket a scrap of roman pottery which i had found the day before in a molehill on ham hill it interested him and i think it was this that made him select me i was to take the place of one of his masters for the summer term on the whole i recall those three months with pleasure at first i was terrified at having to teach at all all the little boys were cleverer than me i used to have to steal along to the classrooms every night to get a hold of a book with answers so that i might work out the sums we would do the next day in the seclusion of my bedroom i also had to do this kind of preparation with the latin prose and french french that was always terrible to me most of the boys had been abroad and knew how to speak it quite well the worst of it was a certain good-natured madam who used to come over from ramsgate twice a week to give conversation lessons seeing my predicament got it into her head that it would be a kindness to let me attend her classes a chair was placed for me at the end of the room and there i used to sit like a great clownish dunce while these clever children chatted to each other over and to the lady the mere possibility of being called upon to pronounce the simplest word made me literally sweat it sounds as i tell it as if the situation was after all not so very awful but it was enough to make me miserable it was enough to make me howl when i was by myself it was enough to make me take a french grammar concealed in my pocket during those thrice precious hours when i was free to go where i liked i used to go off to margate or ramsgate by train in those places i could feel the ebb and flow of the great world nothing here was closed down nothing here was confined i might no doubt have had no end of exciting assignations at these times but i never did it seemed quite enough for me simply to be there witnessing the manners the comings and goings on the hot sands 
sometimes it is true as i paced along by the water's edge i did get glimpses which sent vague thrills through me thrills exquisite and enervating there is always something pagan about the seashore it is free and beautiful lust is there but it is the lust of the open air and hot sunshine at the end of the afternoon i would look out for some out-of-the-way tea-shop where i was sure i would not be recognized and where i could eat watercress and shrimps at my leisure i would return again by tram-car and as i went swaying along with that curious iron bar which i suppose connects the electricity crackling and hissing rising and falling i would never miss a certain orchard which i could just see over a high wall an orchard with midsummer grass and moon daisies and cow parsley rising high under the apple trees and seeming to me to be typical of the kind of place of romance one is always longing to find oneself wandering about in under quite new conditions in another life almost and i had a need to restore myself with places of romance for besides the boys i had the undermasters to contend with i don't suppose any young man who is worth anything would be content to spend his life as an undermaster in a private preparatory school and no doubt this is the reason why one comes across such objectionable and imbecile types in such a position there were four here besides myself they were all golfers T, a straightforward and not altogether unpleasant type, who had allowed his intellect to dwindle and dwindle from lack of use, till he was capable of wondering how the filter, as they used to call the headmaster, could possibly give the top form such free interpretations of the Old Testament stories. W, an international football player, very proud of his muscles, with the manners of a prize fighter he used to get the little boys to put their hands on his arm and then catch them as in a vice with his biceps h an unsufferably conceited gentleman with a talent for rhyming after the manner of gilbert and sullivan the music master i think now i could have made something of him lank and lean with crisp black hair cut short like a schoolboy's and with quite an exceptionally long nose he was certainly more intelligent than the others and certainly more incompetent but i hated them all they were petty and mean and wearisome i used to die at having anything to do with such people every night coming home from supper we had to walk down a long passage i being junior to the others walked behind at the end of which was hung that picture of the laughing cavalier which has in it such an extraordinary amount of falstaffian rabelaisian earthiness i used to look up at him and catch his eye that eye that babbles of taverns and green fields that libidious wine-bibbing eye with its generous assurance that after all undermasters did not make up the whole of life but they were devils these undermasters they did not appear to have any brains at all on one occasion i made my form learn that charming child's grace of herricks i wrote it on the blackboard here a little child i stand holding up my either hand 
cold as paddocks though they be here i hold them up to thee for a benison to fall on our meat and on us all by some ill luck one of my colleagues what a word as j c p remarked when i used it in one of my letters to him came in and read it you can imagine what shouts of laughter the recital of those lines created as an example of what poface taught his form gold as paddocks cold as paddocks they completed the school chapel while i was there i would sometimes attend the early services and noted not without ironic interest how eagerly these schoolmasters would return after their devotional exercises to their toast and marmalade and hot coffee how snug and well appointed that chapel was a peer of the realm whose pedigree is not unknown to me presented it with an altar cloth costing seventy pounds after the sands and white cliffs i think i look back upon the gardens with greater pleasure than anything else they seemed so opulent of gorgeous midsummer flowers like peonies and poppies and carnations i used to love to escape to the garden chuckling to myself my head full of my own thoughts i think wherever grass grows wherever there is vegetation trees and bushes and flowers one can be happy my predecessor was returning the next term so i did not go back to that school again i was again at home and again because no other profession presented itself i sent out applications for scholastic vacancies one day in november i received a telegram asking me to go to a school in worcestershire i sent a reply saying i would come the next day and then went off for a walk through the stoke wood and over ham hill wondering what this new venture was going to be like a cold late afternoon mist enshrouded everything and the path through the wood was slippery with mud and sodden leaves i arrived at my destination the next day just as it was getting dark i was told to go to a house called the gates where some of the masters lodged they were all in school but in the senior master's room i found the remains of the tea they had just finished you know the uncanny feeling of entering a room from which people strangers have only lately gone one is conscious sometimes of an almost physical impact as though the auras of the late occupants were still hovering in the air the servant lighted a gas jet which flamed and spluttered i sat down at the table in excited dejection and nibbled at a piece of plum cake i looked at the bookshelves my eyes encountered rows upon rows of soiled school books only too familiar lower down i did notice a few books of interest but these were all in such new birthday gift covers that they in no way reassured me i noticed the works of anthony trollope in the world's classics edition by the fire was an armchair and when i looked at it i could almost see the schoolmaster sitting there night after night having his last pipe before going to bed there were two or three pipes lying idle on the chimney-piece and then my work began this time i had to take a much larger class and the boys were by no means all gentlemen a more slack and slovenly lot i could hardly imagine i was always telling them to clear up the classroom but it always seemed to me smothered and used up full scap rolled into round balls the desks were battered and carved upon and the fingers of all the boys were inky 
and their collars grimy and crumpled. I am afraid I taught them very little. Every time I unlocked the classroom door, I felt as if I was going into prison, and something worse than prison. Once, in a rage, I determined to cane a boy, and when I had made all arrangements and saw his bent body covered with curiously shiny trousers, I could hardly raise my hand. At that time, pain suffered by any sentient being seemed awful to me. It is different now. This very morning, standing in the heat of the day, I witnessed, unperturbed, the merciless flogging of an ox, because it was refusing to work, and out of very despair had lain down. I did cane that boy. His name was Pringle, and he had red hair. On the whole, the masters here were a more dignified lot of men than at the other more exclusive school. The headmaster was, I think, exceptionally distinguished. I used to sit next to him at lunchtime. He would always talk to me in a friendly, intelligent way. The master's lodging at the gates I had most to do with, and they were by no means the pick of the school staff. We used to have breakfast and tea and supper together. The senior master, whose room I was first shown into, was very spruce and well-groomed, and spoke with almost a lisp. He evidently took himself and his work very seriously, and considered himself a very responsible person. I came to hate him. He was capable of saying the most tedious things. Every day before going in to luncheon at the big school, we used to collect in a little room hung with old school groups. We used to look at these. They were, as the little man used to say, of perennial interest. Once he complained of gout. I suppose, he said with a smug, self-satisfied smile, we have to suffer for all the port our ancestors drank. In reality, he was an awful little cad who never had any ancestors at all. He told us of how he was a staunch supporter of the Conservative Party in his suburban house near London, and he kept deploring the action of the government and giving a free government to the Boers after all the money spent. I must tell you that going and coming from the school to the gates, we had to pass through a very poor quarter of the town, where one was compelled to look upon the most appalling sights of penury and gloom. I continually saw children so starved that they looked like apes, and once an old woman walked in front of me with her white hair half eaten away by lice. Yet it was down these streets that this spruce, complacent scholar of Emmanuel College used to trip all pious, pompous sneaks come from Emmanuel, quite oblivious to it all, with his roll of carefully corrected papers under his arm, and his dapper, well-fitting mortarboard on his head. It was in those days I began to read The Clarion, that paper of Robert Blatchford's, which is at once so refreshing and so insipid. Then there was another master from Downing, a much more interesting individual, with a really diabolical physiognomy, who had drifted into schoolmastering God only knows how. I understood from the first that he really did not care for any of these things, only for his dog, a great dame which was a terror to me and the town in general. But even in these surroundings, again I got moments of peculiar exultation. In the Easter term the spring began to show signs of its approach. I used to go for walks by myself, sometimes on the Kidminster Road, sometimes on the Birmingham Road. 
I remember being very elated once as I was returning westward by the appearance of that faint green faraway light in the sky which Coleridge and Waiter Pater used to love which always seemed so extraordinarily suggested of space and eternity. I remember too my pleasure at finding red dead nettle and colt's foot and also at the smell of the cut grass on one of those rare hot days in March when they were preparing the field for the school sports. But these masters, one could never get far away from them or their point of view. On one occasion I asked C to come out with me for a walk after supper. He consented with amused condensation. As we walked down the lighted street, my eye caught sight of those soft shadows on the moon's surface outlined with peculiar distinctness. I remarked how strange it was to think of those cold dead mountain chasms being actually visible to us, so aloof as they were from our particular life, from the wet shining pavements upon which we were walking, from the mud and the lamplight and the newspaper posters. It was cold, and the little man was wearing a pair of woolen gloves. He rubbed his wool-covered hands together and remarked that it was too cold for him to feel sentimental over the moon. Eventually, the second term did come to an end, and I was free again. I now wrote to my father that I was tired of schoolmastering and wanted to earn my living by writing for the papers. A suggestion vague enough to frighten anybody. My father very generously acquiesced. However, with his letter came another one offering me the post of private tutor to a boy of fourteen at H. I was to be paid a good salary, and the idea seemed to offer certain possibilities. Anyway, it would be a new scene and a new sensation. I will quote from my diary. End of part twelve.